Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Paul Stevenson, and this is episode 114 of VRP Rocks, the ultimate classic rock podcast that says that my music is better than yours. Make sure to subscribe to VRP Rocks on your podcast app right now so you don't miss a single episode. They come out every single Monday and always feature big-name rock stars that found fame in the 60s, 70s, or 80s. Now, today's episode is our third Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee in the last five episodes. The big names all speak to VRP Rocks. My guest was inducted into the Rock Hall way back in 1996. He also played one of the most iconic cultural events of the 20th century, Woodstock. And at the grand old age of 79, is still touring with his lifelong friend and bandmate, Yoma Kaukonen, as part of Hot Tuna. That's a band that they formed way back in 1969. I am, of course, talking about Jefferson Airplane's Jack Cassidy. And I mentioned Yoma Kalkinen there. It was funny that during the interview, Yoma phoned Jack and Jack answered. Well, these are bases that have been developing with um, Tom Rebecca for the last 10 years. And, uh, of course, it never fails, does it? <laughs> well, this will be perfect. Yoma. Let me put you on speaker because I'm doing an interview with a gentleman in Scotland right now. We're doing a Zoom interview, so you might as well say hi. Hi, I'm driving, but I'd love to say hi. Okay, that's good. So I'll, I'll check. I'll call you later on. Okay. Okay, bye. And if you want to hear a bit more from Neil McAlkinen, I did actually interview him a few years ago, and you can hear that and all of his stories on episode 35 of VRP Rocks. Just scroll back through the catalogue to find that one. And quickly, before we hear more from Jack Cassidy, some exciting news. VRP Rocks is now available as a radio station 24-7. Over the last few months, I've spent a lot of time carefully building an online radio station, a classic rock station, in keeping with the podcast, all the music from the 60s, 70s and 80s. But it's not like your usual classic rock station. No, no, no. I have manually loaded the songs myself. There's more than 900 on there so far. And I can promise you won't hear the overplayed songs that you hear everywhere else, not here on VRP Rocks Radio. There's no more Stairway to Heaven or Smoke on the Water or Bohemian Rhapsody. No, no, no. VRP Rocks plays deep cuts and classic hits. There's so much great music that, you know, regular classic rock radio ignores. And that's what I've tried to address with VRP Rocks Radio. There's some forgotten gems. There's album tracks, B-sides from legendary bands, plus music from bands that have slipped from view as well. You're going to hear songs that you won't expect to hear on the radio, songs you might not have heard for a long time, if ever at all, 
and they're all brilliant as well. And it's all tied together by me. I've recorded hundreds of links introducing songs, so you're going to get the real feeling that I'm broadcasting live 24 hours a day. I soft-launched the station to the VRP VIPs, the people who signed up to the newsletter, and I've had some fantastic feedback so far, so please, please, please do give it a listen. I'm going to post a link so you can listen online in the description of this episode, so please give it a click and save the link, bookmark it, whatever it is, give it a good long listen and let me know what you think. I love hearing from you anyway, and I really want to create a radio station that complements this growing VRP Rocks community. I'll also post a link to listen on the VRP Rocks social pages and pin it to the top as well, so if you ever forget the link or lose it or whatever, just go to Facebook or Twitter, search for VRP Rocks, and it'll be pinned at the top of the page on there. Please, please, please go on and give it a listen. Also, a quick thank you to Simon Foto, another long-time listener. Simon first messaged me a few years ago now, while Simon very kindly left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and a, a great review as well. He said... Very cool podcast for rockers and real music fans. Keep it up. Loving it here in Sutton, Quebec, Canada. It's amazing to get all these reviews from around the world. As recently we said there was Denmark and Finland and Australia and things like that. So thank you to Simon and to everyone who has left a review recently as well. If you haven't yet, please do. Even if it's just a click on the five stars button, it makes a real big difference to the podcast and makes places like Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever app that you use start to show it to other people in their feeds too. And it helps to spread the word. And the main thing helps to keep classic rock alive. Right then, back to today's guest. And it's the wonderful Jack Cassidy, a man who played on, well, legendary tracks like Somebody to Love and White Rabbit during his time with Jefferson Airplane. In this extensive interview, he talks about the early days, how he met and first worked with Yorma Kalkinen when they were young teenagers. He talks about joining Jefferson Airplane. He talks about the band's first lead singer, who was replaced by Grace Slick. There's reminiscing about the records. He talks about what it was like to play at Woodstock and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. And, very excitingly for me, how he came to play on one of Jimi Hendrix's most iconic songs, Voodoo Child. Yes, he, Jimi, and Steve Winwood were in the studio when that song came along and he was there to cut it. So you're going to hear all about that too. It's a fascinating journey that Jack takes us on. And as I said earlier, at 79 years of age, he shows no signs of stopping with more road shows booked with Yorma Kalkinen and Hot Tuna. So here you go. I hope you enjoy my chat with Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee, Jefferson Airplane and Hot Tuna bass player, Jack Cassidy. Um, so let's let's start with with you and Yorma. Then obviously he's just phoned you. Um, you. You said that you were fourteen, he was sixteen. So so how did you guys meet, and and, and what was the first band you played in? Let's, let's let's go back to the early days. Well, you know, you kids in high school, you kids in high school, you know, and and certainly back in, this is nineteen fifty eight, fifty seven, fifty eight. This wasn't a vocation our parents envisioned for us. <laughs> you know, if I, you know, his parents, father was in the State Department, his mother was a teacher, and mine, my parents, uh, doctors, dentists, and lawyers. But they all loved music, you know, everybody loved music. And I have to say, but for both of our families, they, they all encouraged our our interest in the, in the art. So uh, it was really quite, quite interesting. Uh, in the real world, I'm finishing out junior high, what was then junior high school, and, and I'm just turning 14. And you are finishing out high school, it's turning 17, you know, and we met through my older brother, Charles Cassidy, who was a record collector, uh, and we all collected a lot of music. Now, as a precursor to that, my father was a, a dentist, but but his his uh, hobby 
it was a, it was an audiophile. So he built hi-fi, as they call it, in the fifties, amplifiers in the fifties, uh, and collected music. And, and when he was in college, the late twenties, you know, he had a, he liked a lot of the jazz bands that were going on. So he belonged to what was called the American Jazz Society. So, you know, at eleven or twelve years old, I was listening to a lot of, of jazz music, uh, Big Spider Beck and, and, and Jolly Warren Morton and uh, really interesting players out of the late 20s. But in any case, we, we you always started playing guitar and, and singing songs, and, and I was playing guitar. I started playing guitar at 12 in 1956. Uh, again, uh, through my father up in the attic as an 11-year-old, I found a Washburn guitar, nylon string guitar, with a couple of strings missing, and started playing around on that and thinking that my parents didn't know anything about it. You know, of course, you're 11 years old, you know, good luck. And, uh, and, uh, and maybe not today, but then. And so that guitar disappeared, and at, at Christmas 1956, uh, I had a younger brother and an older brother, and we all ran down the stairs to the tree and all that kind of stuff. And I looked around, it was a little po-faced, you know, not, not too many boxes for Jack. And then uh, there was an envelope on the tree, and it said, Dear Jack, this entitles you to uh, uh, 12 guitar lessons. Uh, and we took that guitar. It was, should, it, it was supposed to be ready for Christmas, but it's not. We, and we're having a strong but steel strings. Uh, and, uh, and basically, they, they heard me playing around, and without missing a beat, they got me off on the right foot. I, I, I had a guitar instructor, and I, and learned right away about good hand positioning and, and all of that kind of stuff, even though I was playing songs from the Gibson book, of which I have right over there in my library. Oh, wow, still. <laughs> uh, yes, it is. And uh, that's another story. And, and uh, you know, learning songs like Peg of My Heart and things like that, you know, and all the, the correct uh, uh, plectrum techniques and all right. of that stuff. But I, uh, you know, at the time I was began to listen to a lot of rockabilly, uh, a lot of Gene Vincent and uh, Carl Perkins and, and and things coming up out of the country rock world because I'm in Washington D.C., which is an artificial designation of a ten mile diamond in between Maryland and Virginia. You're in the South, basically. So in that environment, the right place at the right time, you know, Yorm um, and I were junior high school and high school and we got together and, and played and we played uh johnny cash stuff and and uh mostly sort of rockabilly stuff uh at the time mm. um and then the, the following year he he went uh off to um uh, college and that's where he met ian buchanan and learned how to approach the acoustic guitar instead of just strumming it for songs you know uh, so when he came back a year later after we had our little high school band called the Triumphs, you know, and we and we played that late '58, it was a sea change for him because he came back with intact songs played intricately with it, with a bass on the thumb, melody, and singing, and melding that all together into an intricate form, you know, like a Jolly Roll Morton at the piano, and uh, I just thought that was just just terrific. And so as he progressed on in in being three years older. And let me point out, it was interesting that in the normal world, a kid that's 14, 13, 14 years older than a 17, 18 year old guy wouldn't normally be hanging out together. <laughs> but the music brought us together. Yeah. And 
there was never an issue. So as we kept in touch, in the beginning of 1960, late 50s and 60s, I also started getting inter- interested in listening to a lot of jazz. And, and every single major jazz player, Roland Kirk and Yusef and Further to that education was the Howard Theater, which was a sister theater of the Apollo. In the, in the 57, 58, 59, right when they were at their peak, I went down $1.50 in the afternoon and one of my buddies were by myself and uh, saw Little Richard, saw Fats Domino, saw the Coasters, saw Ray Charles many times, Bobby Blue Bland, Jackie Wilson, all these great singers and players that came up through the D.C. area on, on, on a on a circuit. And so I was fortunate enough to just see all those greats in person and most of all the jazz guys, all the clubs were small. So you got to park yourself right there in front of these guys. I got to hear Charles Mingus play the bass. I wasn't interested in the bass yet at that mm-hmm. point. I was playing guitar, but but still, I guess uh, what was really embedded in me was, was the tone of the instrument. What got me to listen to uh, Eric Dolphy was his bass clarinet playing. The tone that he got out of that instrument was just unbelievable. I'm talking in front of the instrument, listening to it, not on record. And where he'd be known for 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 his dexterity on the instrument, when you heard him in person, you realize that those all those notes came out of the fact of the way he made his, the tone he got out of the instrument. And uh, that always stayed with me and impressed me uh, throughout my whole career. Incredible, incredible. So you mentioned, obviously, you started with the guitar, and and later on when you joined Yoma in San Francisco, you were playing bass by that point. So so when did the transition happen? When did you pick up the bass and, and decide to, to give that a go? Oh, that was great. So Yoma uh, goes off to college, and, I, and I'm, I'm finishing out high school, and around about the next last year of high school, I'm 16, that's, uh, I'd been playing in, in a club circuit in, in Washington, and then there were so many clubs to play. The rendezvous that Yorma and I played when we opened up to Link Ray and all, all that kind of really edgy stuff going on coming out of the rockabilly world. And then there was regular country clubs and gigs, bluegrass and everything. And as I played guitar, I, I moved around. There was a many different bands that musicians would move around in within, the, within a band. You, everybody knew everybody that was playing and whatnot. I was, I was one of the younger guys picking up as much stuff as I could. One, one, I think the summer when I turned 16, the beginning of the summer, just as school was, was laying out, there were summer gigs to get, you know. And one of the summer gigs was uh, on the Circle Line, this little uh, ferry boat that went back and forth between the Washington side and over the Virginia side. I think of a four-week gig that came up for Danny Gatton, and he was putting a band together. And he called me. I said, listen, Jack, I'm stuck, and my bass player is ill. He's in the hospital. Do you know anybody's playing bass? Yeah. And I said, no, I don't know. And don't forget, bass players, electric bass players, were mm-hmm. few and far between. Everything stand-up bass. It was just this changeover was starting to happen. So anyway, I, I said, no, I don't I, I don't." Don't know of a guy right now. When Yorm and I played together, we didn't have a bass player. We had a guy, another guy, uh, Mike Honeycutt, who used to turn it to the A string, D string, uh, E string down a couple of a couple of notes, you know, in order to play, you know, kind of like a baritone bass. So 
He called me back and says, listen, Jack, why don't you do the gig? It pays good. It's 115 bucks a week. Now in oh. 1950, uh, that was a lot of money when, when gasoline was 19 and 20 cents, <laughs> 29 cents a gallon. Yeah. So I said, listen, I don't know anything about bass. And of course, and then the classic, the classic line came up, you know, Jack, how hard can it be? It's only got four strings. So I took the gig and borrowed uh, Ernie's bass. And that was the new precision bass that come out with this single offset pickup, et cetera. And I played it and I played the gig. And I, you know, I just fell in love with that tonal range in the instrument. And, you know, uh, it, it, it was a watershed moment for me. Incredible stuff, incredible history. I love hearing all this sort of stuff. Um, just to move on slightly then, obviously you did join Yorma in San Francisco and he, yes. I think he, yeah. he famously said so that, um, when, that... Yeah, at the end of that period, uh, 60, uh, in, uh, 65, um, I was talking to some friends, a banjo player, a friend of mine, uh, Bob Linder, and Yorma had called him. We all got on the phones because I hadn't seen him. He'd moved out to the West Coast, so I hadn't seen him in a year and a half, two years and a And uh what are you doing now? And and he says, oh, I'm teaching music and playing gigs and all that. He says, I just joined a, joined a band. I said, what? He says, yeah, it's a, a folk rock band. This is August or maybe it's, I think end of August. He says, yeah, just a couple of weeks ago. And I said, you, what? You're the purest? And, uh, uh, and so he says, yeah. And he says, it's really great. We, we, uh, it's really crazy bunch of people, and he says we've got a manager that promises to pay us fifty dollars a week whether we work or not. And uh, Whoa. <laughs> so in any case, you know, I, I'd heard a little bit about this uh, a scene out in San Francisco, but there was very little from from the print that you got and whatnot. You know, it wasn't anything like it, it is in, in recent history. So uh, you just heard rumors and things, you know. But the music scene in Washington was very static for me. So. I was kind of like, uh, I was frustrated. I, was, uh, I didn't have a, a real fresh musical outlet on anything. So I was primed and ready for this. So he said, listen, he says, uh, why don't you, uh, let me talk to the guys. And he, he, But first he asked me, he said, so what are you doing? I said, I'm doing the usual, playing guitar and playing bass and bands, and I'm going to school or keeping out of the army. And uh, uh, and he said, you play the bass? I said, yeah, I play the bass. He says, "Are you any good?" I said, oh, "I don't know." Uh, and so, uh, so he called back and he says, "Listen, we sent a plane ticket out. This is in September, uh, nineteen sixty-five. The band was formed in August with Marty Ballon, Paul Camp, uh, Yorma, and Sidney Tolley Anderson uh, on on vocals, and the bass player that I replaced. So I came out on October sixteenth, and we rehearsed a little bit and played." Uh, the Harmon Gymnasium on October 16th. I came out before that. Uh, and uh, it was my first plane flight brought out. And I came out without a bass because in the gig that I had earlier, uh, gig kind of gig six nights a week, you left your bass on the stand or something, you know, because you <laughs> played five sets a night, 40 on, 20 off. Show on Sunday afternoon too. In any case, it got ripped off. That was that beautiful 1960 concentric oh, pot no. uh, Fender jazz bass, <laughs> you know. And so now it's 1965. So I borrowed the other guy's bass and I got the gig. So went down to Satterley and Chapin in, in San Francisco and bought the new Fender jazz bass, which I wasn't happy with because 
they changed the pot configuration instead of tone volume, tone volume, where you could control the, the mix in subtle ways between the two pickups. They had two volumes and a tone to kind of mix, but it was really, uh, didn't make any sense. So anyway, not long after I messed around with that and, and, and I took a, I wanted a deeper sound out of the, the instrument to add to that. So I took a precision pickup, butted it up against the neck, and then I went and bought three concentric pots and put them in there, uh, drilled another hole and put in and wired them up so I could mix those three pickups any way I wanted to. Um, and that's that's the instrument that I used on the first uh, three Jefferson Airplane albums. It takes off a uh, surrealistic pillow and uh, after bathing at Baxter's. Um, and as you said, uh, the original lineup uh, had seen you as, as the vocalist, but she was replaced by Grace. So what was your... Oh, was first... it that? What was that? I was a whole year and some later. So we had made a, a whole first album. So Jefferson Airplane takes off and done it. And and Sigley was great in, in a lot of ways. She she was a, a pro all the way, uh, but in the vocal placement of the three-part harmony, which Paul loved, and he was a big fan of the Weavers and whatnot. So, you know, you see your factions in the band, and so he he always wanted a, a female singer in band between Marty, who had a, his own solo career in the early 60s. Marty did, and as he got into the whole folk world at the time. So she worked really well within that that combination, and she had a much lower range to her vocal. And actually, Marty took all the high stuff. She was in the middle, and Paul had the stuff to, to the side. So... <laughs> Those harmonies really work well. If you listen to it on our first first album entry, it's really interesting, very smooth stuff that she did. And then, of course, uh, uh, later on when she went to raise a family and leave the band, um, we looked around the other local bands in San Francisco. Um, and there were a lot of local bands. That was what was great. So we found uh, there was another band called The Great Society and, and Grace was in that band. And we all knew each other. We all listened to each other's shows. Nobody was working that much. So if you weren't working, you were listening to whoever else was playing around in town. That's that's the way it was. And that was what was neat. I was used to the East Coast. It was really cutthroat, you know, a, a lot more uh, in the band world. Uh, uh, you know, a leader side made a lot of hiring and firing and stuff. But on the West Coast, here I found situation where bands would form together, nobody in their right mind, if they were going to form a classic band together, it, you know, would, would pick the variety of musicians from variety of backgrounds that ended up playing together in, in, <laughs> in San Francisco. And that was, that was the strength of it. You know, I think Paul coming from different background, the drummer Skip Spence wasn't even playing drums. He was a guitar player and, and, and Marty liked the way he played drums. And for a first year, he played drums, and then he was replaced right soon after when Sigmy left with Spencer Dryden. It, it was a fascinating time for me because here I'm thrown into this where even if we're doing so-called cover songs, we're mandated to do them our own way and our own approach and find a different approach. And everybody responsible for what they do. So I'm responsible for writing all my stuff writing all of the bass influence in the, the song and, and working to um, create, a, create a different overall sound from all the parts. And that's, it, was a, it was a terrific time. 
but as far as players go, you know, we weren't that young. I was the youngest guy in the band, and I was already twenty, already twenty-one. So uh, it it was uh, in the in the same grouping. You had uh, the Charlatans, which later on was you know became uh, you know Dan Hicks and the Hot Lakes, where where grew out of that one. But the Charlatans really started. Charlatans really started this the whole San Francisco scene pretty much in there. And then to follow up with the Warlocks, we turned into the Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane. Big Brother and Holding Company, and then later on, Janice joined the Big Brother and Holding Company. And the the, uh, the fifth band was Quicksilver Messenger Service. Uh, it was a fascinating time and a, a perfect timing for Jack. These things I wanted to do on the bass, I, I had no outlet, and now I had songs at that outlet to do it on. You know? And and really, as it, as it developed over the next few years, you know, it, we came up with some pretty wacky stuff. <laughs> but, it, you know, as far as we we're going to commercially, we had, you know, White Rabbit and Somebody Love with a big ass great song. But the other stuff that we built around it was really trying to go a lot of different directions and use a lot of these influence. And that's, I think, was the strength of the band. And also the bedrock of the brevity of the band as well, because mm-hmm. we're all young, we're all learning our, our craft and going in different directions. Everybody wrote songs. There's only so much room in one big band for that. So later on, I th- I, it ran its course from 1965 to 72, more or less. And around 1970, Yarm and I already started putting the stuff that we worked on together for all along into an entity called Hot Tuna. Then there was just so much time to get all that done. And we s- stepped back from Jefferson Airplane. And, and those guys, Paul, did individual sessions that we all, you know, did his own records and we all played on them. You know, we weren't at each other's throat or anything. And they, I remember Paul calling me on saying, do you mind if I use the word Jefferson and Jefferson Starship? Fine. Uh, and so they started that entity, which, as it turned out, sold far more records than Jefferson Airplane ever. But it was just a, a great creative period of, of time. And, and I look back on it now, and now it seems like Seven years of nothing, you know. There's a lot of stuff packed into that seven years, 1965 to 72. And just touching on quickly, obviously the the pinnacle that that everybody still talks about today. It's you mentioned the the two big singles, but the album itself, Surrealistic Pillow, it's still um, held up as a classic. I mean, how do you feel looking back at that record in particular, uh, so so many years on, and and its legacy that it left behind? Well, it's really interesting with all the fifty years stuff coming up and six years stuff coming up you know we've we've almost all the bands have been approached to put this material out in modern format and all that and and we've all had to listen back to a lot of that and you know there's stuff i hadn't listened to since i recorded it Mm -hmm. Uh, because not everything got played in person and of course like i said we only did that until 72 and then i never really played much of the airplane stuff as i revisited this stuff lately like i was saying i was I was amazed at how uh, how well we did everything. Uh, um, and Jefferson Airplane takes off. 1966 is when we recorded that. And of course, to those artists out there in the world, we recorded that album in four days. And you walked in the studio, set up your amps, and put the mics up, and you played it. <laughs> <laughs> and so there was there was no Pro Tools to fix them up, you know. And uh, and so, I was. We really 
developed in some some pretty catchy arrangements, you know, that the Yorm and I looked at as we were going over some of this stuff again, and we just started laughing. You know, that, no, we, we could play that shit today, you know? God, it's so complicated. And uh, <laughs> it's interesting, you know, when you go, a career's a long time. We can, you don't listen to your own stuff. If, you, if you're on the inside, we're on this side of the curtain. You're on the yeah. others. You don't, you don't think about it. There are compliments you're proud of and whatnot. But uh, I don't listen back to, to old live recordings or anything like that. <laughs> and if you don't mind me going back a few years again, um, I have to ask you about Woodstock because obviously it's become one of the, the, the biggest cultural events of the 20th century. But um, what's your memories from, from that time then? I mean, from that day itself, but, but the, the lead up to it because nobody expected it to be what it became. Well, there, there, was, a, there was an expectation, but it was all packed within about a three-day period before. And as you, as you saw, you you heard there was going to be a big affair at a big field, and uh, you know those those were new events. Those kinds of events hadn't happened. Now we had started to do that in San Francisco with the B and and playing in Goldmead Park, where more and more people started to show up, and you saw that. But this, of course, Woodstock was a whole other area. This wasn't like little San Francisco and their little little hippy dippy thing. This was the East Coast, the brick world, you know, and and um, I think the biggest impact was we looked around as we saw it mushroom because we were stuck in a little Holiday Inn hotel down the road in Kingston, waiting for for you know this three day event, waiting to, to to get your slot to get in and to get into the event, and then we saw on 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 TV, of course, there's only three channels. <laughs> You know, rabbit ear antenna, TV going around like this in your hotel. And so uh, we see uh, the patrol out, you know, dealing with all the traffic on the streets and realizing uh, that, that all this stuff that had been building up, starting out perhaps in San Francisco and escalating out in various towns throughout the United States, but particularly the East Coast concentration of a population, that's the big thing. Um, and as it, uh, you know, you've got a chunk, good chunk of that East Coast population just moving one direction at one time. You've got traffic, and that's what happened. We watched it sort of mushroom up into this event. Of course, into what we viewed as the straight world at the time, and the TV reporting and whatnot. It was it was like the aliens have landed, and so. Uh, <laughs> You know, you expect it to be the the National Guard to be called out, you know, to ring the, the area around, but it didn't quite work out that way. But it all worked out fairly peacefully. There, Nobody had expectations and scenarios a galore like they do today with any event because so much has happened over the period of time. You know, you had your concerts and amphitheaters and you had park concerts and things like that, but nothing like this. So as it began to mushroom up and see how the a great mass of humanity was moving up into this one area, in this one farmer's field, um, it was quite phenomenal. And then we had to get there. So we thought, we looked at each other and thought, we got to get in the gig or we're never getting in it. And some people could fly with the helicopters and all that. We... We had the transportation of choice, I think, was the LTD station wagon for bands, you know. Uh, wow. 
and a state car for you guys. A big square open back thing where you could fit, you know, six people in plus all you could toy. Norm and I like to travel in that fashion because we always wanted to, we always had our guitar with us at all times. And I think Norman, Grace, and, and Spencer, why not? They came in through a helicopter, I'm not sure. In any case, we had to find a pathway into the stage, and, and like any farmer's field, you know, there's access road for tractors and whatnot, you know, in, in, in big field areas. And at the corner end of this one in this field was where the stage was built. And so, Already when we went in there, because we were supposed to play Saturday night, I think it started Thursday, I'm not sure. In any case, Saturday night. So we start, went in there early Saturday uh, morning, and it was already packed. There was already cars in every one of these little roads, cars on both sides, and just a narrow little, what was left in the middle to get in. And so uh, I remember a good part of the ride in Many of those cars to the left and right lost trim along the side. That's in the days when you had chrome trim on a car. And uh, so we got in to the site and realized we were lucky to get in, period. So, and then, of course, there was a mix of, of good weather, bad weather, you know, things working, things not working, and, and all of that. But everybody working furiously, you know. So much of this that had been built up in the artistic community that happened out in San Francisco as well, where where you had people in the electronics world and aerospace world coming out of that industry, working with amplification to make PA systems you know, work well. And as you had various artistic people practicing their endeavors, you had people sewing and making clothes and people constructing things like stages and and all working in this one community, and that's what hit everybody. When we got in there, we looked and saw all those people. We thought, my God. And later on, we were told around 300,000 of us. And it was really a, a them against us sort of. Uh, still strange to anybody in a Midwestern town was if you walked around with long hair on, you know. So it was a, really a unique moment in history, and I'm glad I'm part of it. Absolutely. It's, it's it's historic, I mean, absolutely. We played about, I mean, we played the Nebworth Festival, you know, we played uh, uh, Isle of Man, we played, you know, we went over later on, Yorm and I played, we played them as Jefferson Airplane, as Hot Tuna, and then played Hyde Park, uh, and, you know, did, you know, I saw the, the European version of that, and then, of course, it's all, you know, it, it all started in Europe anyway. I mean, you know, all the, the gathering of people for festivals and, you know, the, uh, the enjoyment of great gobs and groups of people getting together to celebrate whatever it is. Um, just one little thing to touch on as well, if you don't mind. Um, Jimi Hendrix, obviously an absolute legend. Is it the famous story of yourself? And was it Steve Winwood who were jamming together and, and along came Voodoo Child? Is that correct? Yes. And, and you, you People use the word jam loosely as if you, you, you all, all smoked smoked a weed and just started playing together. But, you know, musicians look for opportunities to play with each other. We really enjoy the opportunity. Mitch Mitchell is my buddy and friend. I just love the way he played. I loved his, uh, in my opinion, for what it's worth, in that early period of Jimmy with Mitch Mitchell, I think that's what gave the band a different kind of swing than if he had had a hard rock drummer, so to speak, like I had later on, or just a rhythm and blues drummer or something, you know. 
I think that's what gave a different sound on it. And the, you know, so I, I, Mitch and I got along great. And there's lots of stories I can tell you about that some other time. And with the Fillmore Auditorium in San Francisco, Mitch and I and Jimmy play and doing some jamming. But in this sense, he was making a record. So uh, I, I got I was fortunate enough to, to play a cut on the record with, with Steve Winwood. I love Steve. I mean, I've got his single upstairs in my record collection that I bought then. I mean, you know, just phenomenal. Give me some love, and just when when we heard that, that was the kind of song that Steve Winwood did. It truly was like an American icon song of of going down the road in your convertible, you know, you know, and and listening to that song blaring out of your radio like like crazy. You know, it was it really set the tone at the time. It was just phenomenal. In any case, and then uh, Jimmy and I and, and he invited us over. We had played, played what's I'd done the Dick Cavett show, uh, early uh, uh, TV show, uh, Jefferson Airplane. And then we, we went over to a club as want of the day, like I said earlier. You warm and I carried, I carried my bass, he carried his guitar around all the time. That's what you get to when you're young. And, uh, uh, and we heard, because uh, we taped the show early at 8 o'clock or something. And uh, so, you know, and everything starts up in New York late, of course. And we heard that traffic was doing their, I think, I believe, I, or was their first, if not first shows, their first tour over in the United States. And and we'd had their records. Everybody heard each other's records and stuff, you know. Uh, if and I can interject, that was exciting about the time. Everybody checked each other out and... And I think in a very healthy way, was spurred on by other people's developments in their own band. And that's what brings me back to bands. The bands like the Rolling Stones and bands like like uh, Traffic and bands like Jimi Hendrix and bands that, that, that had different things going on within that band. Uh, bands like Cream, where you heard the personalities of the individual players at work in hand, you know. Uh, and so we... Um, Heard that the traffic was playing at Steve Hall's scene, which was a little half underground club in, in New York at the time. One of those typical friendly clubs, you know, where there's a post in front of the bandstand, things like that, you know, and it just, you know. And, uh, and so we went over to hear him, uh, and Jimmy came in, and we had known Jimmy from, he came in late at night, I think, in 11 or something. We had known him from uh, you know early days at Fillmore and playing around and, and doing so much stuff together, and so uh, uh, after talking and listening to their set and being wowed by their set, and then he invited who whoever wanted to back over because he took a break from recording, and he had just taken control over pretty much the session from Chaz Chandler, and and so the sessions were probably annoyingly loose to other band members but <laughs> but uh, in any case so I don't know 17 or 15 of us were all over there you know packing up the vocal booths and doing what you do you know when you're doing such nonsense and we listened to him work on overdubs and some tracks on the album and not and then I think about 6 in the morning or something he said let's play a song let's play a blues so he worked out the chain and we worked the changes out this wasn't a jam jam I mean but you know, you worked out that 
the layout of the song and whatnot, where it's going to go. Uh, uh, well, we didn't know where it was going to go exactly, but we did that. We did a half a take. I think it broke a string, and then we did the full take. Uh, uh, um, and had a ball, but the, I've been asked what it was like to play with Jimmy, and, and it was it was great. He wanted to play. He was a musician. He wanted to get down and play. So it, it wasn't, uh, you know, when you when you do that, you just want to do your job and do it well. But but at the same time, you want to draw up each other. So Jimmy and I could look into each other's eyes, and there was there was just nothing but let's do some play. And so in, in that way, it was absolutely normal, God, like any other, you know, all, all of the, the hoo-ha that comes from it, imagery of the stuff he was trying to shed from him anyway, because he wanted to get down and play. Great player, great songwriter. And he, I think if he had lived, we would have heard him develop a lot more in a lot, a lot more different directions. Uh, but uh, I think uh, soon after that, there was a certain amount of an albatross around his neck with all that went the hoopla that went along with with what people perceived as who he was. And uh, that happened to a lot of, to all of us, you know, in a lot, lot of senses. But it was fun. It was great to do. And it was great later on because when he played town, uh, played in town at Winterland next year or something, you know, we, we had a hook. I had a hook. He could invite me on stage. I had something to play, you know. You know, so we knew we could. And, uh, so I was real happy about that, you know. I mean, played something besides Red House, you know. And so uh, then uh, I think it was about seven thirty in the morning. And we looked at each other, jumped in the station wagon, piled our little stuff in there, and drove to Washington D.C. because we had the gig next night. That's what you do when you're young. <laughs> <laughs> we drove, you know, the two hundred and fifty miles down to D.C. our hometown and played down there. As you do, as you do. Now I'm not, I'm sure we didn't get a a, a one minute sleep, you know, for <laughs> the following night. Overrated. Sleep's overrated when you're young, definitely. Um, and just one last thing to touch on. Just um, what's your what's your memories and recollections of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction? Because obviously, when you were inducted in '96, it was it was fairly uh, a new thing, and and a lot of the, the huge, amazing bands were going in at that time. So, so what's your memories and recollections of that time? Well, that's a, it's a great honor. You know, I I want to. I often tell this story, but my dear sweet late wife Diana, who's English by the way, Balfour, uh, who had, had uh, been over here since the early seventies, she, uh, I, we were getting that, and I said, you know, and I was fidgeting around about it and all that, and, and she said, Jack, what's wrong? She said, Gee, I, you know, it's so odd, you know, the, these kinds of awards and things. And she says, you know, Jack, she she had been married to a movie director. Before he passed on, and uh, he said, "You know, you must remember it's a great thing to be honored by your contemporary." She said, "Just relax, enjoy it." You know, she said, "You, it, it's it's hard to make as she used to put it all the time, hard to make your mark on the wall." She said, "You've made a mark, and and you'll make other marks on the wall, but to enjoy this, go out there and and do it." So we did, and so it was it was it was. Uh, uh, an honor to me, you know. Ed, there's a lot of stuff in about people, you know, I'm, that aren't involved with it. Always saying, you know, how uh, translucent all these honors are and things like that. But uh, I figure I'll, I'll take it as it came and be grateful that I've got it. 
Absolutely. And just to finish off, you mentioned that uh, yourself and, and Yoma, obviously you've been friends for such a long time now and it goes back and you're still touring and playing together. So what's the plans for, for 2024 between you? Well, we have a lot of, of, of plans. We, we put to bed pretty much the electric guitar playing version of Hot Tune in this last year with a, a number of shows, uh, partly because sonically it was beating us up uh, on the road like that after a period of time. And we've always, we've actually started out our, the combination of, of Barbara and Jack has Hot Tuna acoustically. And we figured that's got long legs for us. Uh, uh, and right now, it's it's got more challenges. I've got the the new basses I'm playing that are true acoustic instruments. Yorm has really just leaps and bounds over the last 23 years of teaching, and 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 uh, I have participated in that as well. Uh, added so much more material. We're we're having a lot of fun investigating a lot of different material uh, uh, and just expanding the knowledge of the instrument itself. Uh, and so uh, in the acoustic world, that that really are the, are the challenges up for us. Like I say, it's not playing unplugged. It's, it's a real deal. So uh, we've got three tours lined up, uh, July, September, and then next December. We just got the lineup for next December or a couple of days ago. So... We'll uh, we'll uh, look forward to doing that. Lovely stuff. Well, Jack, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you, and and thank you so much for showing me your bass guitars as well. They're wonderful. Well, thank you very much for having me. This is this is a ton of fun. There you go, Jack Cassidy there, the third Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee on the show in the last five episodes. All the big names speak to VRP Rocks. Well, that's it for this week's episode then. Thank you so much for listening to this and make sure you click on the link in the description or if that won't let you kind of click from it straight away, just copy the link into your internet and give VRP Rocks Radio a try. You're not going to regret it. Some brilliant music from the 60s, 70s and 80s that you won't have heard on the radio in a long time. It's not like any usual classic rock station. Please give VRP Rocks Radio a try. Also, of course, make sure to subscribe to this podcast, VRP Rocks, on your podcast app so that you get all the future episodes. They're released every single Monday. There's big-name classic rock stars on every single one. Leave VRP Rocks a five-star review on whatever podcast app you use. It makes a big difference. And check out VRP Rocks on YouTube as well and the social media channels too. Everywhere, just search for VRP Rocks. But that's it for me then this week and this week's episode. So until next time, take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett. 
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Points.